Shalom and welcome to the Jewish Mind, where the growth of modernity meets the timeless wisdom and solutions of Judaism. Ladies first is what a gentleman says. However, is it what a gentleman believes? Let's put away the political correctness and let me say that no one is recording our thoughts to have them suddenly appear on social media when we decide to run for president. So, please, let us both be very honest with our thoughts now. What I have found in discussion with many men is that when a man says, ladies first, they are thinking of one of two inner beliefs or both of them. A. The woman is the weaker sex and needs the man's protection. Thus, ultimately, the woman needs for the man to say to her, ladies first, in order for the lady to be empowered in this man's world of ours in being first. Then, the, se the second thing that I have come across is the following belief, that the gentleman thing for a gentleman to do is to honor the woman with saying, ladies first. And thus, this has nothing to do with whether the man truly believes that the lady is truly first with or without the man offering this to her. Because in his belief system, his offering the woman to be ladies first has nothing to do with who the woman is in society, but rather of his own being a gentleman in society. The point here being that in both of these belief systems, the systems, the man does not believe that the woman in her own right is first, higher, and more powerful than the man in our present state of the world. Yes, of course this man believes that the woman needs to be respected and has the many amazing gifts, talents, and powers. However, does the man truly believe in his heart of hearts that women are superior to men and therefore truly are in the rightful, truthful, God-given realm of ladies first? Men, hear what I am saying here. Are women without the chivalry of the man rightfully first before man, built upon the woman's superiority to man? My research has shown that most men don't believe so. They even speak of equality as a gift of the modern thinking man. Just the thought of these words doesn't dawn upon them. A gift? Either way, the title of this lecture is Ladies First For Real. And the definition here of for real is that it is about a God-given superiority and not a gentleman's gift to the fairer gender. I want to share with you how this plays itself out in the mystical teachings of the Torah and what the Rebbe of Righteous Memory does with this teaching. The Torah tells us that Jacob has two primary wives, Leah and Rachel. Jacob's firstborn, Reuben, came from Leah. However, in Jewish law, there are two types of firstborns. One is the father's firstborn, and the second type is defined in the Torah as the one who opens the womb, which means that it is the firstborn of the mother. Thus, while Reuven is the only firstborn of his father Jacob, however, there is Joseph who opened the womb of Rachel and is thus the firstborn of the mother. Now, concerning the laws of inheritance, the Torah clearly tells us, and I'm going to quote to you three verses 
in Deuteronomy. If a man has two wives, one beloved and the other despised, and they bear him sons, the beloved one and the despised one, and the firstborn son is from the despised one, then it will be on the day he, the husband, bequeaths his property to his sons that he will not be able to give the son of the beloved wife birthright precedence over the son of the despised wife, the real firstborn son. Rather, he must acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the despised wife, and give him a double share in all that he possesses, because he, the firstborn son, is the first of his strength, that he has the birthright entitlement. Wow. Mystically speaking, we are taught that in today's day and age, the firstborn, other than for the commandment of the pigeon aben, the procedure that we do by a firstborn when he's 30 days old, is talking of the firstborn of the father. Everything else besides the pigeon aben is always about the firstborn of the father. Thus, if a man divorces, or if he is widowed and marries a childless woman who then bears for him her firstborn, the laws of the firstborn primarily refer to the firstborn of his first wife, his firstborn. Then the mystical teaching goes on to explain that this is only until when Mashiach will come. However, once Mashiach will come and the greatest spiritual heights will be revealed to us, that is when Joseph will be the bearer of the firstborn birthrights instead of Reuben. Practically speaking, this will manifest itself in the priesthood of the Kohanim, which originally were meant to be to the firstborns, being that God saved the Jewish firstborns in the time of the tenth plague of Egypt when God smote all the Egyptian firstborns. Thus, we see that when Mashiach will come and we will enter into the greater spiritual heights, it is the firstborn birthright through the woman that is truly superior. Beautiful, is it not? No, it isn't, says the Rebbe. For in either scenario of the firstborn, whether it be of the father or of the mother, we are speaking specifically of a male firstborn. The question is only which empowered male firstborn is greater, the one empowered by his male father or the one empowered by his female mother. But what remains is the empowered male firstborn son. Thus the Rebbe moves the concept further, explaining that this is only so in the first and lower era of Mashiach. However, in the final and greater era of Mashiach, it is truly the female which is superior, and not just in how she empowers her firstborn male son, but in who she is as a female, truly ladies first. This is how the modern issue of ladies first for real plays itself out in Judaism, and thus, let us explore this in order for us to be truthful men rather than just being politically correct gentlemen. So men, study on if you dare. In order to understand this, we will first have to explore what God considers to have been a sin that God performed. Yep, you heard right. God says that He performed a sin. Let's see. In Genesis, there is a change in the verse's wording concerning the moon. First the verse states, And God made the two great luminaries, calling the moon an equally great luminary to the sun. However, then the verse continues and states, The great luminary to rule the day, and the lesser luminary to rule the night, calling the moon the lesser luminary. 
Rashi immediately explains this to the person studying the verse and says, he quotes the words, the two great luminaries, and he comments, They were created equal, but the moon was made smaller because it brought charges and said, It is impossible for two kings to use the same crown. This Rashi is based on the teaching in the Talmud that quotes God's response to the moon being, Go diminish yourself. Literally, make yourself small. Let us now see where else Rashi brings this up. In Leviticus, when the verse speaks of the sacrifices to be brought on Rosh Chodesh, Rosh Chodesh is the beginning of the Jewish calendar month, which is on the birth of the new moon. So there in Leviticus, we are commanded to bring a sin offering for God, La Hashem. The question is why? Rashi there quotes the teaching in the Talmud, and I'm going to quote to you the words of Rashi. In the Agadah, that's the homiletical part of the Talmud. In the Agadah, it is expounded thus. The Holy One, blessed is He, said, Bring atonement for me, because I diminish the size of the moon. Wow! What does it mean that God sinned and He needs an atonement? I am not the one to explain what it means that God sinned. However, I would like to share with you my personal insight to this based on another mystical teaching. Mystically speaking, the entire concept that a person can sin is peculiar. In the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidus, we live in the consciousness of God is everything and everything is God on its most practical and tangible level. Simply speaking, the mass from which the universe was created is God. And thus God is simply and truly everything. So much so that Maimonides explains that the reason why God knows everything is simply because God knows Himself. And God is everything and everything is God. With this being so, let us revisit the mathematical equation of sin. Sin is an act of rebellion against God. Thus a person sinning is a piece of God rebelling against God. This is the equation of a sin from the point of view that God is everything and everything is God. Thus, from a mystical point of view, sin is quite a peculiar phenomenon. In order to explain this, Kabbalah and Hasidus discussed the chain of events that led to the possibility of a piece of God having a point of view of its identity as so separated from God that it can even act in rebellion against God. The chain of events is A. Tzimtzum, which means contraction of the infinite light. B. God diminishing the moon. And C. Adam eating from the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. We are here to focus on B. God diminishing the moon. What role does God's diminishing the moon have in creating the human being's capacity to sin? I want to quote to you yet another teaching before I share with you my own insights. However, let us first connect this with our conversation of the woman's position in God's universe. Mystically speaking, we always connect the woman to the moon, which is why many communities have a special Rosh Chodesh group for women that meet on every Rosh Chodesh. The reason for this is that the moon is spiritually connected to the tenth emanation, which is Malchut, kingship which is also called Nukva, feminine mystique. The sun mystically represents the six male emotions, 
and the moon represents the feminine mystique. This is also mystically explained as the sun being the giver and the moon being the receiver, representing the physical reality in which the moon has no light of its own and simply reflects to the world the light of the sun. Now that we understand the moon as being made into the receiver when originally it was an equally great luminary as the sun, the giver, let me quote you a teaching of the sages. Our sages question as to why there exists poor people. God has infinite wealth to give to mankind in which all people can be rich. rich. The sages go on to answer that the reason why God created for there to be the rich and the poor is so that charity can exist. The entire universe was created for the existence of charity and kindness. And if everyone was rich, there would be no possibility for charity and kindness. Thus, God created that there be the rich and the poor. Now, as an aside, the sages go on to say that the poor man agrees with this concept. However, he wants to know why he has to be the poor one. The sages answer, It depends upon mazal. This teaching in itself can become a plethora of lectures. Maybe in the future we can discuss this concept. For now, let us move on to one more teaching in which the Rebbe explains the emotional effect that charity has on the rich person. Our sages tell us that concerning the people who did not allow for the bodies of King Saul and of his son Jonathan to be buried, that they could never be allowed to convert into the Jewish nation. King David's reasoning was that there are three traits which are the physical signs of a Jew, compassion, acts of kindness, and tibbedness. Therefore, being that these people display the exact opposite of these three characteristic traits of the Jewish people, King David declared that they may never be allowed to convert to Judaism. Now, the Rebbe in his teaching quotes two different opinions of the order of these three traits. I want to focus on the Rebbe's insight into the order that I listed here, in which timidness is the outcome of acts of kindness. Based on the teaching of our sages, as to why the poor man is poor, the rich man meditates on the fact that in essence the poor man should be also rich. And the only reason why the poor man is poor is in order for the rich man to be able to fulfill God's purpose of creation, that he, the rich man, should have who to give charity to. Suddenly, instead of feeling so proud of himself that he is giving, and even somewhat judging the poor for not being deserving of his own wealth, suddenly the rich man is filled with timidness and humility as he looks the poor man in the eyes and gives him the charity. In this very moment, the timidness and humility allows for the rich man to see reality for what it is, that the poor man is the true giver, and that he, the rich man, is the true receiver. Now, I want to share with you my thoughts on why God's diminishing the moon is the origin of a human being's possibility to sin, and thus, the Holy One, blessed is He, said, bring atonement for me, because I diminished the size of the moon. The moon was always meant to be the receiver, as it always was Malchuk, kingship, which is the feminine mystique. However, originally, 
the receiver was clearly seen and perceived by creation as an equally great luminary as the sun is. The moment God created the perception that the moon is a lesser luminary than the giver, the potential of sin began. Suddenly there existed the capacity of the egocentric giver, filled with self-pride and with a belligerent sense of judgment upon others. The verse speaks as the conception of sin being, and I quote to you the verse in Deuteronomy, and your heart grows hoardy and you forget the Lord your God. And you will say to yourself, it is my strength and the might of my hand that has accumulated this wealth for me. That is the conception of sin. The only reason why a rich person could say this is because God diminished the moon, the receiver, the poor person. Were we to see the truth, we would see that the receiver is not diminished at all. Rather, it is quite the contrary. Kabbalah and Hasidus explain that in all the greatness of the sun, it is still not the one who can overcome and illuminate the darkness of night. It is precisely the moon, the receiver, and the poor person who can bring God's light of benevolence into the cold and frightening dark night. And with this insight, I want to suggest another thought. The question that begs to be asked is that if God perceives that His diminishing the moon is a sin, then why did God diminish the moon in the first place? I believe that the reason why God diminished the moon is because God saw that even the moon couldn't see its own superiority. Let's go back to the teaching. The teaching tells us that first the moon came to God and asked, It is impossible for two kings to use the same crown. Thus God saw that even the moon couldn't appreciate her superiority of malchut, kingship, the feminine mystique, and instead she only saw herself as best an equal king to the sun. Thus in order for God to show the moon its superiority, God had to create the diminishment and the darkness in which only the moon can bring God's light and warmth. Thus God told the moon, go diminish yourself. Well then, why is God asking us to bring atonement for me because I diminish the size of the moon? The answer, I believe, is in what we said at the opening of the lecture. The sin that God is taking upon Himself is that with God's diminishing the receiver, God created the egocentric haughtiness of the politically correct gentleman who tells the woman, ladies first, but says it as a superior giver without being able to see that in truth it is He who is indeed the humble receiver. This fallen paradigm of the giver's perception of His superiority will even have its fingerprints smudge the first and lower area era of Mashiach. It will only be in the final and higher era of Mashiach in, in which God's diminishing of the moon will be completely atoned for as the superiority of Malchut, the feminine mystique, shall truly be seen by all. In closing, I want to explore one more aspect of this firstborn's birthright and with this to find the practical guidance and solution for us to embrace and to act upon. Maimonides explains that the fundamental belief in Torah and in its laws and commandments is that none of them will ever change. Even when Mashiach comes, 
Thus, it is eternal, the verses laws of inheritance, that even if the father wills it so, he cannot make the firstborn of the mother inherit the firstborn's birthright to a double inheritance in the place of the firstborn of the father. Thus, even when Mashiach comes, there is a special gift to the power of the male father's firstborn son. Why is it so after all that we explained? The answer is that God's gift of meaning and purpose to human life is that everything that we are to experience in the times of Mashiach is to be brought about by our work here and now in the darkness of exile. In other words, yes. What will bring about the revealed greatness and superiority of the feminine mystique in the highest era of Mashiach is that you and I behave like gentlemen in this dark world of misconception and arrogance. Mashiach will come through you and I thinking, saying, and acting upon ladies first for real. Mashiach will come through the rich man truly embracing the timidness and humility that the only reason why God's institutions go through financial challenges is so that he, the rich man, can receive the opportunity to give charity. By the rich man asking himself, by golly, did I give enough to do justice for all this poor man's suffering for no other reason than for my benefit? By asking this, he will bring Mashiach. This is when the moon will experience its true greatness. My friends, our sages teach us that the Jewish people are compared to the moon. They count, which means they set the calendar by the moon, and they will be restored to greatness like the moon. The time is now, and the opportunity is ours. Friends, Modernity offers growth and growth comes with challenges. Judaism offers timeless divine solutions. The Jewish mind is where modernity meets Judaism.